Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I am your humble host, Coach Jason Coop, and I'm psyched everybody is here with me today. Anytime I get to talk about strength training with one of our coaches or somebody out there in the space, it always generates a whole lot of interest. And so I wanted to bring on the podcast today one of our CTS coaches, Nicole Rasmussen, who works with some of our trail and ultra runners. She's also a heck of an ultra runner in her own right. She has a master's in exercise science, as well as has this really cool background where she was a strength and conditioning coach at the university system where she worked with a lot of different athletes. And I appreciate her perspective for that breadth. The fact that she has not been locked into one specific sport throughout the entirety of her professional career, I think adds a very unique lens on what we do correctly and, which is the subject of this podcast, what we might be doing incorrectly in the weight room with our strength and conditioning programs and how we can actually correct those. So I wanted to bring Nicole on the podcast today to discuss just that. What are the most common mistakes that we see with trail and ultra runner strength training programs and how to actually correct them? Now, inevitably, when we talk about things like this, People are going to think, oh my gosh, they are talking about me. We are not. We just see these things commonly and we want to bring them to the forefront. So please do not take offense. We do poke fun at the modalities and the interventions, but it is limited to that. We're poking fun at the modalities and the interventions, not the people who are are actually undertaking them. So don't take offense, but please do take it as a little bit of a cautionary tale that you probably can do things a lot more effectively with your precious time. All right, folks, there is the preamble. I am going to get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with CTS coach Nicole Rasmussen, all on strength training mistakes and how to correct them. Nicole, I think I think before we before we dive too far into this, we're going to start we're going to talk about strength training, obviously, which is whenever I post a strength training thing, it's like strength training and low carb diets always go to the top of the, of the list in terms of, in terms of downloads. So as much as it sounds like I'm pandering to, to the number of downloads, I'm really not, I'm actually looking very much forward. I'm very much forward looking to this, to this conversation. Uh, but before we get into it too much, I think it'd be helpful if you gave a little bit of a background on yourself, what you have done kind of in your coaching and strength training career and then kind of where you are at right now with CTS and, 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 and use that as to kind of like paint the picture for just who is talking to them through their earbuds right now. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, um, just kind of the brief, brief Nicole story. Um, I kind of come from a really multi-sport background. Um, lucky enough to go to a small enough school that, you know, if you didn't show up for a tryout in a certain sport, the AD was knocking at your door, like the basketball team needs you. (laughs) Um, so yeah, like played a lot of sports growing up. Um, I, I ran track at uh, Brigham Young university, um, was like a sprinter hurdler type of athlete there. Um, at the time I thought distance runners were so weird. Um, (laughs) we had a, we had like a running joke on the track team that 
you couldn't have a conversation with one of the distance runners without them using the word mileage. Um, (laughs) Very true. And it was like a joke among the sprinters, you know, like, let's see if we can get them to talk about anything else other than their training, their mileage. And it was impossible. (laughs) Um, But so it's kind of fun to see, like, I don't know, I'm the weird one now. I definitely can't use have a conversation without using the word volume at this point. So it's all right. I was about to say with trail runners, it's vert, right? That's that's the, that's the analogy. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so I think I just always had that interest in human performance and that kind of led me to a, to do my degree in exercise science and do my master's in exercise physiology. Um, and then from there, in terms of like professional coaching, um, the majority of my coaching experience is in collegiate strength and conditioning. Um, so I, you know, kind of did the internship thing and the graduate assistant thing, um, and coaching at Brigham Young University. Uh, that was a really fun time of life, right? Like I saw a really broad range of athletes, you know, you have your country club, golf, tennis sports, and your court sports, volleyball, basketball, the swimmers track. Um, yeah. So, um, and then, um, kind of entered a phase of life where I started having kids and decided to kind of stop coaching for a bit. That's when I discovered trail running. And, um, I kind of knew when I came back to coaching that that's the area I wanted to go into, just like really passionate about the sport and the community and, found it really intriguing. So, um, started working with more distance runners and kind of a full change in uh, my focus. And yeah, that's kind of led me to, I started with CTS last year. It's been phenomenal. It's been a really great organization to work for. I just, I get giddy about our uh, coaches meetings. It's, it's just fun to be surrounded by like-minded, um, by my people, right? It's, it's been great. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. I mean, I work with kind of all levels, um, wide variety of events, right? From a first 50K runner to someone training for a 200. But that's the Nicole the Nicole rundown. <laughs> the, the, the reason I appreciate your background so much is that you have what I would call a proper strength and conditioning education as well as practical background. Mm-hmm. It's not like you picked it up because you were in another sport or because of some sort of, you know, uh, some sort of other circumstance, like this is kind of what you originally went into and you did for years in a collegiate setting, which is always really hard. I mean, for, for the listeners out there that have never been in a collegiate athletic setting, the strength and conditioning coaches in that world, they really do kind of range the gamut in terms of, both how good they are, but then also what they do with the, with the students, the student athletes that they're working with. Some of them are very, very detailed and they have a lot of autonomy. And then in other words, are just copy pasting programs that they get from their CSCS manual or something like that. And everywhere and everywhere else in between. And I've always thought that the ones that have master's degrees, have advanced degrees and go through this for this formal program of working with a variety of sports, they offer a different context to the conversation of where and how and to what degree strength training is appropriate for certain individuals. 
Sure, sure. And this is kind of, this is going to kind of be the, this is going to be a little bit of an undercurrent, I would say, of the conversation that we're going to have. We're going to use this framework where it's like, these are the common mistakes that you see across the board in your practice, but we can't just like debunk and throw things under the bus. We have to offer, offer kind of practical, pragmatic solutions to, to people who, uh, to people who are listening right now. And so we'll definitely take it. But I do think that looking at this from the, okay, let's not do this. I understand what you're trying to do. We're going to do this instead as an alternative. So that's the framework. We've offered up four different categories of things. Who knows if we're going to get through all four? We might get through one. We might go through 10, depending upon how, how much we how much we actually get into it. But I'm very much looking forward to it because I always appreciate your perspective when we get together and we talk about these things. Okay. The first category is one that you and I see a lot. And I'll, I will put the, and first off, let me also offer this piece of background. These are the things that you came up with. These aren't the things that like I personally came up with. You just came up with them. And I was like, oh yeah, let's go ahead and do, let's do that. You can totally control the outline here. So I'm going to offer a little bit of my perspective on it. And then you can kind of like jump into why this is such an issue and then what the alternative is. So Perfect. the first Perfect. category is training for muscle endurance. And I have two, I have two perspectives on this and I'm just laughing my ass off because I know that some of our coaching <laughs> colleagues are going to listen to this and they're going to bang their heads against the table. The first one is, is actually a piece of cycling training framework that we used to use many, many years ago that has now been, it's been obsolete for several years. Let me just say that. And that's the concept of very low cadence intervals to stimulate or to improve muscle endurance. So you go out and do an interval at like 45 or 55 uh, revolutions per minute. And because of the length of the contractile time that's associated with doing a cadence interval at that low of an RPM, somehow it's going to stimulate this, this, this concept or this improvement of muscle endurance. We also see this in the endurance running world. And I would say it's particularly, uh, or I see it more commonly, or I see it often, I guess is the best way to put it. I see it often with athletes that live in flat level conditions. They live in Florida, they live in Texas or whatever, and they're training for the mountains and they want to do these really high rep strength training exercises of greater than, you know, 20, 30, 40 or something like that, whether it's box step ups or squats or whatever it is in order yeah. to train specifically for the eccentric component of running down of, of running down hills. So that's our first category is this concept of muscle endurance and using these very high reps in a strength training setting in order to prepare for an endurance event. What do you have to say about this, Nicole? Sure, sure. Um, so I think it's helpful maybe to first step back and like lay some groundwork on like a couple of principles, like training, basic training principles to get like an idea of like where, where did this come from? Like why are athletes so inclined to train this way when they come into the weight room or when they decide strength trainings for them? Um, and so I think it's important to look at, you know, we talk about as coaches all the time, this principle of specificity, right? That the add up, the, the, whatever training load you're giving should be specific to the event. Right. And we hear this all the time. Um, and a good example, like if we're talking about ultra runners is 
that, you know, like, let's say you're training for a hundred miler, it's mountainous. There's going to be a ton of climbing and descending your average pace in your race might be 17 minute miles. Um, and so sometimes if you look at that to, through a really narrow lens of specificity, you might come away and think, well, I need to train at 17 minute miles all the time, all year long. Right. And so it's a mistake that we make sometimes in being too specific for too much of the season. Um, right. And, and if you train that way, like if you only ran 17 minute miles with lots of vertical, you could probably finish your event, right? Like you could probably make it through, but if you step back, you, you, you see that there's, there's actually a huge benefit, um, in doing flat and fast intervals, right. For certain times of the year, even though it's not, there's never going to be a time in your hundred mile race where you're running at a 10 out of 10 RPE for four minutes. Right. But there's a time in the season where we we're going to run flat and fast intervals. There's a time in the season where you're going to run tempo runs. Right. And, and so you have to kind of look back and say, what are the demands? What are like the demands of my event? What are the predictors of success? What are adaptations that will give me success? And then step back further and say, well, what's the best practice in training that adaptation? Um, and, and I think, and I start out with a running example because we're runners and it's helpful. So like, to contextualize this idea that um, sometimes you can be too specific. And if you do that, you miss out on this opportunity to train an adaptation in the best way possible, that adaptation that you're going to need. Um, and, you know, sometimes as runners, we're really brought, we're really narrow-minded. So I, I think another example would be like, let's say we had a tennis player, right? A tennis point is rarely longer than 10 seconds. You see the occasional like 30 second point. Um, but for the most part, like it's really quick, it's explosive. Um, and so you might say, well, like we only need to focus on quick explosive movements. But if you look at the duration of a tennis match, you're looking at a two hour match. And if they're going to play a doubles match and a singles match, like they're probably playing three hours of tennis. Um, and so there's time in a tennis player's career where they need to be running they need to be focusing on their cardiovascular fitness. And even though there's never a time in a tennis match where they might be running a three minute interval, <clears throat> right? <laughs> like we know that that's the best practice to, to get that VO2 max adaptation, which then will transfer over into, you know, then you layer on the specificity later, right? You develop the adaptations, the fitness, you layer on the specificity and get the result you want. Um, and if you think I'm making this analogy to say, and that's why you should be weight training, that's not where I'm going with this. <laughs> um, but like, just to demonstrate this idea, right. That specificity is important. Um, but if you are too specific all year, it won't set you up for the success as successful as you could be. Um, and so when, when you see, you know, we talk about these mistakes that, endurance athletes make with their strength training. And when you look at this really prevalent idea of lifting light weights for a lot of reps, and it is very prevalent, you see it all the time. I, like, I think it's helpful that I think that's where the idea came from, right? I think people are thinking we need to be specific, right? We need to be as close to what running is if we're going to strength train. And, and it seems like a good idea Right. But if you step back and look at the bigger picture and say, okay, 
like what adaptations are going to give me success in my event? And then what's the best practice to train that and doing anytime you're doing like a rep range that's greater than 20 or even greater than 15, um, you're kind of stepping out of the range of intensity, the load that's necessary to elicit strength. So that's the first thing I think to take away is that reps of 20 or higher, and I'm going to say as low as 15 and higher, <laughs> like you're, you're in, you're no longer, that's not enough load to elicit any kind of strength. You need, you right? could repeat that 10 times to, in order for it to sink in for people. I mean, I think that that's a really poignant aspect. So the, I've always thought about it like this strength training is training for strength. Right. And you should never like define something with the word that you're using to define it. But I think a lot of people will resonate with this. Strength training is training for strength. And so if strength training is training for strength, the load and the intensity of the workout needs to be a combination such that it elicits adaptation that will make you stronger. Yes. Otherwise, you're not strength training anymore. You're not exactly. training for strength anymore. You're training for something else. And what you're saying to put a little bit of a paraphrase and also to give you, give you a break and collect your thoughts a little bit <laughs> is once you get over, and I, and I would say the literature, the literature is probably mixed between 15 and 20 and it depends on, you know, what percentage of your max you're doing it. But from a practical perspective, that's a good range to think about it. Once you get over that, the adaptations that you are going to reap from that type of workout move away from the strength domain and into another domain. Not that there's a switch. It goes from strength to something else. It just moves away. And certainly there are better ways to train for strength by using a different set rep combination as opposed to very high reps. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that sets it up nicely. You said, well, it moves into another realm. So let's talk about like what is happening like at a muscular level, if we're training at reps higher than 20. Okay. Let's like, just take a step back and say, okay, well, what, what are you doing in that range? Like what is, <laughs> what will be the re the result? Um, and I think it's helpful to think about, well, how, like, first of all, what's the duration? Like how long is that set going to take? What do you think, Jason? Like a set of 20 to 30 reps of a, uh, I would say I'm going to go, I'm going to go with one mm -hmm. rep per second. So 20 to 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like the lower end. And let, let's say you're doing 40 reps. So, so I mean, you're doing this repeated this like repetitious movement for let's say 20 to 30 seconds or upwards to like 90 maybe like that's where these that's where a lot of these programs fall within like that's how long um and because the load is small enough to allow you to do that many repetitions you aren't recruiting very many muscle fibers and the the amount of fibers recruited to do a single rep with that load isn't going to increase as time goes on. Like you're just going to recruit a small amount of muscle fibers, and then you're just going to fatigue that same small amount throughout the whole set. You're just fatiguing them. You're not recruiting more. You're not doing anything to increase your strength. Um, and, and I think people are like, man, but my muscles are burning and I'm sweating. <laughs> so it must be a really good workout. But, um, well, yeah, you're burning, you're producing lactate, right? Like it's, it's high enough intensity. You're producing lactate, like feeling the burn, but, um, it's like this weird middle ground of an intensity where it's not actually 
is, is, is a 30 second to 90 second, anything enough to increase your endurance, right? If your goal was to increase your endurance, is that enough, Jason? No, it is not. And <laughs> I'd, let me add a little bit more commentary on this before it escapes me. The ironic, <laughs> the, the ironic nature of this is you started out with talking about specificity and the rationale that you see used a lot with this type of programming, very high reps. And, and what we mean by this is you see what people do like lunge matrices and a lot of bicep curls. And you even see people like run in place with weights with like, you know, 10, 10 pound dumbbells for 30 seconds and things like that. Oh, we're, we're getting to that. Uh, we're going to get to that one too. So the <laughs> ironic thing of it is, is that they're the, the rationale behind that programming is with some element of specificity. The person doing that program is thinking, okay, I'm going to have to run up a hill for however long, and I'm going to use this lunge matrix or this series of step ups or whatever to prepare myself for going up the hill. They're using the principle of specificity. Yeah. Or but, the downhill or, right? or the downhill, yeah. whatever, but from a very <laughs> simplistic and basic nature, it completely violates this 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 rule of specificity because you might be running up that hill for hours or down that hill for hours and if you think that 30 seconds of load is enough to prepare you for that i have a bridge to sell you somewhere because that is just not going that is just not going to happen so there's this great irony in this I'm going to be specific for the event and train for the event by doing this thing that maybe the, maybe the biomechanic, I would, and I would even argue the biomechanics aren't all that similar, but no. maybe the biomechanics are similar. Maybe you could get around with that. But if you just look at it fundamentally from a duration and intensity perspective, it complete, like it, it makes absolutely no sense at all. And your, your commentary around how muscles are fatiguing is very basic strength training. This is not advanced stuff that we learned in the last two years. This you could go. I've got a book on my shelf that's probably thirty years old. You know, the anatomy of strength and conditioning that has that principle in there, and it really hasn't changed all that much in terms of what we've learned about how muscles fatigue underneath that type of condition. So, needless to say, the specificity component I think in this in this situation is, is ironic, where we're using low load, high rep thing, or where people are, not we, people are trying to use low load, high rep situations in order to mimic whatever is going on in an endurance event. Right. Right. Well, and I think that, um, another mistake that people make or think, you know, this something we see is that people often will go to like a boot camp style class or a circuit yeah, style yeah, class yeah. at the gym. And it's kind of the similar idea. It just, it just falls into the same category. Like, it's not enough to elicit strength. It's not enough to elicit endurance. Yeah. You're going to get super sweaty and have a great workout. If your goal was to burn some calories, if your goal is health and movement and you wanted to move that day, then I think those things are great. Like if you love going to the gym and doing your boot camp class, like that's awesome. You know, you should, you should do it. But, but if your goal is to improve as a runner, to do something that's going to help your performance, it's this weird middle ground that just won't. So what's the alternative? We promised this from the onset. We're going to present an alternative. And I say this like there's like some sort of magic bullet because I kind of know where you're going to go with it. Um, if we're if we are from a from a perspective of this is a bad utility 
for the for a strength this is a bad strength training utility using a high rep low weight scenario in order to specifically improve run performance and i'm probably going to say that several times throughout the course of this podcast because as you mentioned if you like going and doing this stuff great go freaking have at it if you think it's going to improve your running that's when we're going to have a conversation about it <laughs> but what so what's the what's the alternative right we've got we've got people out there they're listening they're about to do their lunch matrix they're about to go and do 50 you know box step ups in their yeah, homemade gym <laughs> yeah exactly what so that if they're about to do this what should they do instead yeah well and i mean if the goal is endurance if the goal is strength endurance muscle endurance the answer is to run more right if that's if that's the side of the range that we're going for if you're limited on time and you <laughs> you're choosing between the t- like go run more um run an interval and and even that like 30 second to one minute range is still a weird interval even for running right but but like bump it up um add a little more mileage like add a little more running like be more specific in that area right like Um, but if your goal is strength, if you're, if you like strength training and if you want to see, like a lot of times we come back to, is there a benefit to your running economy? Like it does it prevent injury, right? Like if those are some of the things you're focused on and if you've determined strength training is for you, um, you have to kind of come back to the other, other end of the spectrum and say, well, what's the best practice for increasing strength? Right. And it doesn't, the, the sport doesn't matter, right? Football cheer like running like the way to increase your strength is going to be the same across the board right it's not as specific as we once thought um and so like what i recommend and what i think works really well for a runner is that you know if you're coming into the weight room two to three days a week you can get and and you're working you know full body large muscle groups multi-joint exercises um and you know relatively heavy loads so i'm talking like 85 percent or more of your one rep max or or if you if you don't want to do the math it's like well what can i do that's relatively heavy for 12 reps or less right like the majority if you're a runner the majority of your reps all year long should be 12 or less and i would even say most of the year should probably be six reps or less right? Like there's a time in the season where eight to 12 is really helpful or, but like, really like you want relatively heavy loads, six reps or less, um, focusing on those full body multi-joint type of exercises. In other words, train for strength. I mean, I keep kind of coming back to this like very basic thing and you're right that the, the periodization of this for most folks out there is it kind of gets lost, right? I think if we get people into this general bucket of do a do a few to several, meaning less than seven exercises at several reps throughout the year, and then maybe you modulate that a little bit just to achieve some sort of overload and adaptation, that's probably going to be enough to take care of 90% of the improvement that you're going to, that, that you're going to elicit compared to something that's done picture perfectly. Exactly. Exactly. And I think you and Sarah did a really good job two weeks ago, like talking about, you know, you covered, why is this so complicated for people? 
you know, I was having a conversation with an athlete the other day about strength training and he explained it really well. I think like his perspective is spot on and he's like, I'll tell you why it's complicated, you know, getting all fired up. <laughs> he's like, this is why it's complicated because if someone says go strengthen your quadricep muscle, he's like, there's literally 7,000 exercises <laughs> that will strengthen your quadricep. What are we supposed to do? Like, yeah. like how are you supposed to know? But I think like, if you just take away like those general guide, like, put it into kind of a general guidelines, like you said, um, it makes it a lot easier for people and it's easier to wrap your head around. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to switch up your exercises constantly. Like it's kind of the same simple things will increase your strength over time. Running is a pretty simple thing. Like we can mix up our intensities and our durations with intervals, but it's still running. Right. Right. And so it seems really simple for people and strength training. I don't think it has to be that complicated. It's you, you fall into like a certain intensity range, a certain load range, focus on a few key movements and, and you'll be set. Yeah. I always kind of come back to the value proposition. I think that, that that's the best way to, to position it that most people will identify with it. And you can comb through all of the literature that admittedly is mainly focused on the more traditional endurance running activities, 10 K in the marathon and things like that. Maybe, maybe if you get it all right, it's a 2% improvement. And so you have to decide just as a person, right? If you're looking at it from a performance perspective, do I want to spend this time trying to gain that 2% improvement? Now, if you want to look at it from another perspective, as we've mentioned a few times already, I just like doing strength yeah. training. I, I, you know, did some strength training this morning just because I like doing it. Do I think it's going to help me in Cocodona 250 in a few months? No, absolutely not. It might actually make me a little bit worse. And I'm okay with that trade-off. If you're okay with that, that's fine. But that I think that that's the, the, the this value proposition from a performance perspective is really, I think, what we've got to wrap our heads around uh, uh, initially. Right. Let's move on to the second one. Perfect. I'm really, I'm really glad that you put this one down as well. Like you must have been like reading my mind during this for whatever reason. And this is <laughs> core training. And I, I love, I love discussing this, and it gives me a <laughs> chuckle for 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 two reasons. The first one is I cannot find the origin of this in any of the literature or in any sort of uh, academic journal or book, or even if we go back into the university system, I can't figure out who termed this word core, nor actually what it means. And if you, if you know what it is, go ahead and tell me. Um, well, Jason, haven't you been reading the, uh, the journal, bro science journal, <laughs> bro science journal came up with it. Okay. There you we missed, go. You missed, I missed they that put one. a whole series out on this. Yeah. I can't believe you missed that journal. I think they canceled article. my membership a long time ago. Um, <laughs> but anyway, anyway, I can't, I so despite the vocabulary piece of it, um, whenever, whenever studies do come out and they compare core exercises to a squat, some basic exercise that is out there, we will typically see more abdominal and what people would consider their core activation on the traditional exercise versus a plank or whatever other silly exercise that we think is, is associated, associated with core. And, and, and Jason, not just like more activation, but it's upwards of like 30 times yeah, the amount of force that your abdominal wall is creating during a squat versus a plank. I like, know. It's, it's, it's 
I'm, I'm probably making that number, but it's upwards of like 30 times the yeah. amount. We'll link, yeah. we'll link those papers. And there's another one that I actually put on my Instagram a, a, few, a few days ago that uh, linked uh, uh, core training with injury susceptibility and found no difference at all. So anyway, my, my point with that is, is, is that it still gets a lot of focus. Like this is probably one of the most clickbaity things that Runner's World and Trail Runner Magazine puts out every <laughs> single month is something on core because everybody wants to focus on it. But the reality, but the, but the reality reality is, is when you actually look at the programming side of it, right? A, it probably doesn't, it, it, or at least the programming side of it from the literature perspective, A, it probably doesn't make a difference. B, just doing normal activities is going to engage your core more than some of the thing, most of the things that we typically associate with core training activities, AKA planks and sit-ups and kind of whatever else. So why are athletes, why are athletes doing this incorrectly and what should they be doing or what, how should they correctly be thinking about it? I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it is hard, like you said, to define, like, what is the etiology? Like, why are we so, where right. did we, how do we get here? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if it's like the classic high school track where you'd finish practice and then you had to sit around in a circle and do 10 minute abs every single day. Like, I don't know where this started or how it became. So is it an ego thing that we want to see our abs and, you know, I, I don't know either. Um, but I think it is helpful to like, just first get an idea of well, what, what is your core supposed to do? Like there's a lot of muscles in your core. And I think, uh, like you said, the vocabulary, who knows, but like anything from like your chest to like your knees is considered your core. <laughs> um, and, and so first it's like, well, what is your core supposed to do? Right? Like maybe let's, lay that out there. And first of all, respiration, right? The muscles in your core help you to breathe. (laughs) Okay. So that's important. Um, uh, secondly, like your core is supposed to stabilize your spine. Okay. And it's not necessarily like initiate movement, but to stabilize. Um, and then like the third big function of the core that people talk about is Um, to transfer energy from the lower body to the upper body or vice versa, lower body to upper body. So I think a really nice visual of that is like, imagine like an Olympic sprinter in slow motion. They always show like a runner who's running super fast. There's very little movement in their trunk and in their core, right? Like you want, you do as a runner, you want to have a stable core. Like you don't want to have this like excessive crunching or like excessive twisting, right? You want your core to be stable while the other limbs propel you forward. Um, So like, is it important to have a strong core? Well, yeah, yeah, just like any other part of your body, right? Um, and, And we've all seen that, right? Like we've seen the runner that's crunching every single step or that's twisting a little too much. And that is inefficient, right? They're losing energy. If your core isn't stable, you are losing energy that could be transferred from like the arm swing from the upper body to the lower body into the ground. It's inefficient. Um, so, so, so yeah, your core is important as a runner. You need a strong core. I think the problem is we're focusing on the wrong things and we're training it in the wrong way. Right. Um, and where, what you see people, where you see, see people going wrong is all this like excessive bending and twisting of their spine, curling their spine in any which direction, like chasing the burn. <laughs> um, cause it's the same thing. Like, Oh, my abs are burning. It must be making my core stronger. Um, 
and and really like you want your core to be stiff right you want anti-movement you want anti-rotation you want anti-crunching type of movements um and so so like when you talk about well what's the best way um to train the core and first of all like you want to avoid all that excessive twisting excessive crunching um and think about like anything where your core has to resist movement in multiple planes of direction is probably an effective way to train your core. And so if you look at all the traditional things that people are doing, there's a few that make the cut that are like, okay, like those I can see because you're resisting movement while the other limbs are moving through multiple planes. Let's go through, let's go through those before you go too much further. There's kind of like three categories of things that, that make the cut. And the first is like the, all the plank varieties, like, those are, you know, they make the cut. You're, you're, you're working on stability. And oftentimes in a plank variety, you're moving arms or legs. So that makes the cut. Um, any kind of like a dead bug variety. So a dead bug is like when you're laying on your back, your spine is really stable against the ground, and you're somehow moving arms and legs. There's a lot of different varieties, but anything in the plank variety, anything in the dead bug variety, and then um, things. Uh, the last thing that kind of makes the cut is like any kind of a bird dog variety. So if you're on hands and knees on the ground, stabilizing your spine while moving arms and legs, those kinds of things, I would say, aren't hurting you and and might might help with stabilization. <laughs> that's um, not a very that's not a very uh, efficacious bar to jump over. They're at least not hurting you. I mean, well, I think, and- let me, but let me try to, let me try to put a little bit of a different frame of reference on it is, is like, cause you can see, you see a lot of those, I mean, it wasn't that long ago where like planking was a thing, right? You'd see people do it in the park and they'd just be on a bench or whatever. And you know, it was like a meme essentially, but what you're saying by the, well, I know, but what you're saying by the variety is, is because there's some sort of limb move, movement attached to it that makes it, mm-hmm. that makes it kind of rise above the rise above the rest of the crop. And I, 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 I agree with that, but is there any way like, I think we're, we're kind of like, I think we need to back into, is it worthwhile or where on the order of priority is this type of, or where should this type of training be on the whole order of priority lists? very specific to your very specific to your core because yes it's important but could you but you could also say foot strength is important lower back strength if that's if that's part of your core is important right your cardiovascular system is important the way you metabolize fuels is important the your joint stiffness is important i mean there's all these other things that we could add to importance and at the end of the day there's only so much time that we have to that we have to kind of like train certain things and so uh, well, I agree wh- while everybody can sit there and nod their head and go, yeah, you know, we don't want to be like the hunched over runner and maybe some, you know, core stability or core strength is going to help that person have better posture or more economic uh, or more economic gait. How important is it really at the end of the day that we carve out time to do our 10 minute abs at the end of practice? Yeah, it probably comes right above importance to like how good a runner is at doing the farmer blow on their on their run. <laughs> it's it's not like fair is what you're saying. Jesus. It's a step above. Wow. It's not, it's not. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> we all have skills we need to be good at in this sport, right? Um, I mean, like 
the amount of time that you devote to your core training should be a very small percentage of your total training time. Yeah. It, it doesn't take that much, right? Um, it's not as important as the world really, really focuses on and makes you sound like it should be. Um, like you said, like everyday movements, you're engaging your core. When you're running, you're engaging your core. I will say though, like there's kind of like three categories of like the best way to train. If you're going to yeah, train let's your do core, that. here's the best yeah, way. Let's do that. And I think this will answer your question as we go through. And the first is like loaded unilateral movements. So like a single, like lunges, um, a single leg RDL, um, a, a single arm, a kettlebell swing where it's unilateral. So you're working one arm at a time, something loaded that's unilateral, right? So you're having to you're stabilize your spine through a really like loaded intensity movement through multiple planes. And most people won't consider that a core exercise. I think that's kind of what we're getting at, what we're getting at. But what you're saying is from an effectiveness standpoint, that is going to improve what, whatever improvement is in this case, stability, strength, all of the above. That is going to improve your core more so than the core specific or the core focused exercises, just doing a single armed kettlebell swing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's the first category of movements. Okay. Loaded unilateral. Loaded unilateral movements. Love it. The second is anything off center load distribution, <laughs> which might be similar, but so this yeah. is like where you're holding your, your weight, your kettlebell, your dumbbell off center, and then moving through a movement. So like, um, an off center front squat, like if you hold the kettlebell on racked on one side or a dumbbell on one side and go through the squat, that's an off off center load distribution. That's going to require a lot of stabilization loaded. Um, that's sim similar exercises that might work. There is like a suitcase deadlift yeah. or a suitcase carry a farmer carry a single yeah. arm farmer carry or like a single arm overhead press. So a lot of us are already doing like an overhead press. You can do it one arm at a time and then boom, you've got your core work done and you don't have to do 30 minutes of whatever. Abs. Yeah. Abs. <laughs> and, right. And then kind of the last thing that, that works is, Big surprise here, like anything loaded that's a functional movement, a squat, a deadlift, a loaded overhead press, like, right? Like, so I think the thing to take away is, you know, if you're already making the mistake, this is like rounding out, we're talking about you're, you're training high reps, low weight. Like if you make that change, like I'm going to train heavier, guess what? That change to training heavier is also going to train your core without having to do additional core work, yeah. <laughs> right? Like it's almost like a double-edged sword that can kind of hit two birds with one stone there. But. Substitute your 60 second plank for a few one-armed overhead presses and you'll get better core improvement just through that substitution. Exactly. And that's a pretty easy one, right? Because it's time for time, 60 seconds to you, you just gained 40 seconds in your life. You're welcome. Everybody is limited by time here. <laughs> but in terms of effectiveness, I think we can we can go through the programming and a lot of the literature on this and say it's it's not just a little bit, but far more effective as opposed to the very isolated core exercises that you see out there. Perfect. Okay. So core training was the other one. 
don't think about core training as training, like doing very specific things for your core. Think about it in terms of other movements that you can try to create balance or stability or have some sort of unilateral nature to them. Perfect. Okay. Number three, once again, you're in my head somehow. Concurrent training structure mistakes. There's this really great book that I'm like three quarters of the way through by Bit Ronstadt uh, out of Norway, the title of which is Concurrent Strength and Endurance Training. And it goes through, is really dense. It's a great book. It, you, it is not for the faint of heart if you don't like reading this stuff. It is not meant for the lay, for the lay public. But if you want it as a resource, if you're a coach out there or a strength training professional or, or, or you just geek out about this stuff, it's a pretty good one. Um, but the, the kind of the origin of this goes back to, to I'm going to be showing my age here. Uh, the origin of this kind of goes back to the 90s and the early 2000s where there was this big fear amongst the endurance crowd that if they strength trained, they were going to gain weight and they didn't want to compromise their lean body mass in order to get it kind of whatever strength gains there were. And so there, there became there, this, there became this phenomenon of con- like concurrent interference effects between strength training and, 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 and endurance training that has since been, since now we have a couple decades of practice and, and literature to lean on kind of flushed out where we know, you know, we know what some of those potential interferences can be, but then we'd also know that it's probably not as hyped up as we thought it was uh, initially where one gain quote unquote, doesn't really kill the other one in quite the way that we were so fearful of, uh, in the, right. in, the in the early two thousands. So, I want to bring this down to the programming level, though, of when you should do your strength training throughout the course of the week. So what's the mistake that athletes make both within that and then also within the structure of the workout itself? We just went through all of these different exercises. Don't do, you know, these types of core. Go do these unilateral exercises. Lift heavy. Don't use high, you know, reps and things like that. Use a lower rep count. What are the two mistakes that you see from them from that front when they're doing it throughout the week? And then the, and then we'll take that and we'll kind of go through it. And then as a second one, a little bit later on, we'll go through the structure of the workouts themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you mentioned there that there's kind of antagonistic effects, right? Um, and I think maybe like a tiny bit more background there is helpful for people that your strength training adaptations are vastly different from your endurance adaptations. And if you want to like take it back to like an endocrine level, like endocrinology 101, right? Um, when you are endurance training and what they found is that kind of is defined as like any low force repeated muscular contraction for 45 minutes or longer kind of falls into this category. Um, that type of a movement in the muscle stimulates this pathway AMPK, right? And the AMPK pathway has all these downstream effects um, that give us the adaptations that give us greater capacity to deliver oxygen, right? Um, so that downstream signaling gives us the adaptations we need to be a good runner. When we're lifting high force, really high force, high tension in the muscle, um, this activates like your mTOR pathway, right? Endocrinology. And that has all these downstream effects um, that increase muscle size, hypertrophy, strength, um, protein synthesis, these kinds of things. And like you said, like people were really worried that they were antagonistic because one of the downstream effects of AMPK 
is to limit protein synthesis and to block the mTOR pathway. So, and that is well established. Like it is a thing. They are antagonistic at times, um, but it's pretty simple. Like a well-designed week and a well-designed structure during your day can kind of, you can get around the, the antagonistic effects. Um, I would say this is the way I've always put it. The, they are mechanic, mechanistically antagonistic. But like maybe that. not practically antagonistic. You can go through the metabolic pathways and say, oh, yeah, this is going to interfere with that. Absolutely. If you want to do. But we are not a sum product of all of these different mechanistic pathways at the, at the end of at the end of the day. It's the same thing for mTOR. That's why this has become this like God that all the strength training gurus <laughs> try to worship is trying to like upregulate their mTOR pathway. It's just like you really like, do you really understand that that's like one small piece of the whole biochemical pathway? Is this what like this? Yes, it's important, but it's not the only thing that's that, that's that's going on. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole too much, but the, the way that I've always viewed the way that I think that I think that that a lot of people will resonate with is that if you if you look mechanistically at it, yes, you can come away with the impression that they are antagonistic and they are from certain aspects, from certain biochemical aspects. But you can bring when you bring it up to the practical level, it's not that big of a deal. And we see that right. teased out in the in, in the actual outcomes of the of the literature as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um what they've kind of found is that like those signaling pathways, um, so like AMPK, your endurance signaling pathways, the effects of that have pretty gone back to baseline after three hours, right? So versus, you know, the anabolic signaling that comes from strength training, the effects of that downstream, downstream signaling is active for upwards of 18 hours. Um, and so if you kind of think about those things, like, all right, my run, anything that comes from my run that might interfere with the strength training active for three hours, anything from my strength training that might interfere with my running active for 18 hours. I think like that's kind of a helpful framework yep, that you I, can kind of work around. I like that. Um, and so like a really way to, to structure your week then is to do your run. Well, think about like your hardest runs in the week first, right? Like you typically have maybe a speed day or two, your longer runs and and a hard run is, you know, considered like two or three hours or longer or more than 85% of your functional threshold pace. Like those are like the kinds of runs that are hard, right? But um, so if you do your hard efforts in the morning, wait at least three hours and they have shown like eight hours is probably best. Have a meal, replenish your muscle glycogen, do your strength training in the afternoon, evening, on the same day as your hard run day. Like that's kind of the key if you can't. And then I know like we're limited by our lifestyle and the time availability. So let's like lay out the perfect structure first, but like that would be kind of ideal. Hard run in the morning, lift in the evening so that the following day, which is typically like an easy run or a recovery day, it, it's a true recovery day. Like you are actually recovering from the strength training and the run. Strength training is not recovery. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Like you have to consider that yeah. as, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's kind of a good way to structure your week. And, and, and maybe it's not ideal for people. Like yeah. I know I am personally don't have time to do that. And so I have to lift on my easy run day. And do you know what? Like I take, it's give and take for me. I care yeah. less about the performance on my interval day 
than like an elite athlete or someone who cares more would, <laughs> right? Um, so you, you have to work with what you have and make it ideal. But that is a mistake I see made a lot is that you put your strength training day on your easy day. Um, I will say too, if you don't have time to, to do your strength training in the evening on the same day as your hard day. So let's say you're in a situation where I have to run and lift in the same block of time, right? Like I have to do one first, then the other next. Um, and what they, what they've shown is that it's the strength training shouldn't have an effect on your run. If you did the strength training first, but I have found in practice and in theory, like, like anecdotally that like a runner who is going into a hard run workout and they just lifted before, like, that's a big mental component. And you are tired, like anecdotally, you do feel the effects of that. Right. Um, and so if you have to put it in the same block, you should do the thing that's most important to your success. First, you should do the activity that's most critical to your performance. And in our case, that's running, right? Like we talked about earlier, you said, what's the benefit of strength training at the end of the day to your performance two to 3%, right? So do your hard run first lift after, and then try to put as much time between your strength session and the next hard run. I think that's another key takeaway there. Yeah. I've always boiled this whole thing down to first off, Everybody listening should appreciate this framework that you're getting some some metabolic interference effect for a few hours when you transition from an endurance activity to a strength activity. And several, maybe, maybe up to like three quarters of a day in the opposite fashion from strength training to endurance. I think that that framework is, is very, very important for people to understand. The, I've always boiled this down to I want to put from a programming perspective, I want to put the hard workouts, the critical workouts at kind of the top of the hill. I want as little going on before those as possible. I want them kind of in the ideal place at the ideal time so that the athlete can perform during those hard workouts with maximum intensity and they have all of their faculties available to them. Backing up from that architecture, And when we're including strength training or any other type of training, right? I want the lead up to include as much recovery as possible. And so naturally I want the strength training workout to be as far away from that hard workout as, as, as practical. It just so happens that the timing of that is usually right afterwards, either the later in the day or in the, the following morning, if the athlete is doing their work, their run workouts in the evening, that's the right place for the strength training piece, just because it offers the most spacing between that strength training workout and the next hard workout. It just happens to match all of the other timing that, 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 that you mentioned, but from a practical standpoint, I think the way that I've always boiled it down to is just putting those hard workouts on the calendar in such a way that the athlete can succeed the best at those hard workout or for, from those hard workouts and try to back into them with as, 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 as little fatigue as possible. Love it. Okay. So now let's get into the workout itself. Athlete goes into a gym. They've got five exercises on the docket. 
and they're going to do one first and the second one second and the third one third and the fourth one fourth. And I've always seen these sometimes like bizarrely put together in a combination that I'm sure it made sense to the person who was prescribing it. But then I look at it and I'm like, this, you should be doing this the opposite way than what you're actually, what you're actually doing it. So what, what's the right framework for this inter-workout order that we can apply to strength training activities that we can kind of generalize for people out there that, are, that we know we're going to use a multitude of different, uh, a multitude of different movements. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in general, you know, Natalie, <clears throat> Natalie goes into the gym. Um, the first, the first area that you want to address, like while you're the most fresh in terms of muscular and nervous system fatigue, you want to do anything that you, the goal of that activity is to increase your power. That stuff should be done when you're the most fresh. So things that fall into this category, or like plyometrics, um, or like Olympic lifting. Um, so like a clean, a jerk, a snatch, if you're someone who's familiar in doing those things like those, anything directed where the goal is power should be done first. And I see that mistake a lot. I think people throw in their plyometrics at the end. Um, and I guess if the goal of your plyometrics is to put a load on your axial skeleton to so that you're increasing bone density, it probably doesn't matter where it is. But if you put that at the beginning, like you can get a power benefit out of it, right? right? Like you can increase your power. Um, like moving down the list. Um, the next thing you wanna do are like your biggest multi-joint large muscle group type of exercises. So um, this would be like your deadlift, your squat, Maybe if lunge is your big lower body thing that day, like anything that number one, you can achieve the most amount of force with, right? Like heaviest types of lifts that work the most amount of muscles and multi-joints, those kind of go at the beginning of the workout. Um, and then as you kind of work through that and move down throughout your structure of the day, um, you want to go down in order of like, how many joints am I moving? Like, is this a small muscle group? Is this a large muscle group? And then towards the end of the workout, you know, you have like your, if you're singling in on like a single muscle group, like a bicep curl, a hamstring curl, a shoulder raise, things like that should go at the end, right? You're, you're moving less weight. You're working smaller muscles, less joints in within the movement. Those should go at the end. Um, and I will say too, like as a runner, if you already went in and you focused on a multi-joint exercise, like an RDL, you don't have to do as many of those supplementary lifts at all. Right. Yeah, like, you, right. so that's the key is if you're trying the same time, you don't have to spend as much time at those. But if, I don't know, some of us just for vanity reasons, like our shoulders and we want to do our shoulder raises <laughs> at the end, you put those at the end, end of the workout. Right. So vanity exercise is the end. Practical exercise is at the beginning. Is that your general philosophy yeah. there? Go from practical yeah. to vanity. I could dig that. I could dig that. Absolutely. <laughs> so let, let's take this from a really practical point, point of view. You're designing a strength training program for your athlete. How, how many exercises does it encompass and how long is that going to be and how frequently during the week is it going to be? For your typical ultra marathon runner, you just went through the very beginning of this. You kind of have a big variety of ultra runners. When you're doing this, how intensive is it on a week to, on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week basis? 
Yeah, I think that's important to to, to lay out, right? That yeah. We're not talking about some bodybuilding routine that's going to take you all day. Like as runners, we don't need a ton of volume. Um, so like with an athlete, with an ultra runner, I think there's a lot of benefit in going in three days a week if it's early in the season and you can get strength benefits with as little as two days a week and even one if it's late in the season. So you're kind of trying to balance like when my run volume is really high, my weightlifting volume is going to be lower when my weight training volume is higher, that, that work balances well with the times in the year that my run volume is lower. So two to three, three days a week, depending on the time. Um, and really like if you go in and do six to eight exercises, like full body multi-joint type of movements, like that's going to take you 25 to 35 minutes. Right. So we're, we're not talking about a ton of volume, like that's enough to elicit strength. That's enough to elicit the adaptation we're looking for. Um, I personally really like to structure that with like supersetting an upper body with a lower body sure. exercise. So then you're quicker, right? Your upper body's recovering while you're doing something upper, lower body. Um, that answer your question. Did I cover no, that's perfect. I think the, the, yeah. the picture that I'm trying to paint is it's not, it's not a lot a yeah. couple times a week for 30 minutes. That's not a yeah, lot of time. If you, just, if you just cut out all those ab finishers, you can do it. I don't even know what an ab finisher oh, is. Oh, no, we, we made, we'll coin that term. We're going to start up a website and make a zillion dollars <laughs> off of it. Okay. Here's, here's a bonus question for this though. Sure. In your estimation, what's the minimum effective dose? Because there are a lot of athletes out there that are going to just look at the proposition of going to a gym, right? I don't, I, I have to, it's not just the 30 minutes that I'm in the gym. I got to drive there. It's 15 minutes there. It's 20 minutes back or whatever. Now I've chewed up a whole hour of my day. I can't do it two days a week. I can only do it one day a week. What's the minimum effective dose and when should we just try to, or it, or is there a point at which you just cut it out completely? Um, I mean, with a novel, if it's a novel stimulus, right? Like you've never strength trained before, you can get the benefits one time a week, yeah. right? One time, one time a week. Um, if you're, if it's not novel, you probably need two times, a, two times a week. And, and I think a good way to get around this, like in terms of time is, you don't have to go to a gym. Like if you have a heavy enough load, like a couple of kettlebells at home that are heavy enough to, so that you're working in that 12 reps or less range, like that can take up a chunk of time there too as well. Um, but yeah, like at some point you do have to consider for yourself, what's the benefit? What are my goals? Is this worth it? Um, yeah. And the reason I've kind of come at that way, I, I kind of come at it is because we do see from a programming standpoint, other like coaches and athletes out there in the field that will prescribe, uh, listen, just do this for five minutes after your run, kind of, kind of whatever it is, right? It's a leg circuit. It's an ab circuit. It's a combo burpees and pushups and kind of, kind of everything just, just for five minutes. And I've always looked at that saying, okay, it's novel to use that vocabulary that you just used. You'll probably get a, a very, very small initial improvement that maybe you feel a little bit better. Maybe you kind of like, like doing it, 
But then where's the overload after that, right? Because that's, once again, fundamental principle of training, overload and then adaptation. If you're, if you're limited by five minutes, you're either going to overload on the speed of movement, right? Which is more the more common one if you're out there on a football field doing lunges or something like that. Or you're going to overload on the intensity of the entire activity, which you might as well just go run 10 more minutes at that point. Right. <laughs> so I, what I'm trying to get out of, out of, out of this is, is the, what's, if you're thinking about this long-term and we should all be thinking long-term and you really want to incorporate some type of strength routine into your, into your program, realistically, how much time do you need to be able to carve out in order to do that effectively and not just go through the motions? I think realistically, if you're doing that from home, you could do that in 90 minutes. But I think if you're looking at like, I need to go to the gym, like you're looking at a few hours a week. Yeah. So 90 minutes, 90 minutes a week is the, is what you're like minimum, to, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, that you need to carve out. Uh, I've kind of, this is us just like, you know, looking a finger and putting it in the wind, trying to, and trying to come up with this based on our own like pra- practical experience, which I think is worth a lot in you and I's case, because we've been doing it for a number of years. But that's what I've always kind of come to the conclusion as well, is that if you can't carve out, I, I go a little bit lower, maybe my bar's not as high as yours. If you can't carve out an hour a week, twice a week for 30 minutes, let's just leave it on the table. If you want to do something else just for your own benefit, you just kind of like like doing it once or twice a week, great. But I'm not going to look at that. Let's just make sure it doesn't screw up your, the rest of your running and let's make sure that just the load is appropriate. But I've never looked. I, I, I kind of think that that's the minimum effective dose. And really the maximum effective dose isn't much more than that. Maybe it's 45 <laughs> minutes three times a week, right? I mean, it's really, there's a kind of a night, tight bandwidth there. Okay, last category. We already talked about this a little bit at the very beginning, but we're going to come all the way full circle back to it. And this is over-specificity in the weight room. Um, we could go and make fun of the people who are running in the mirror with their two-pound dumbbells or doing box step-ups or whatever, and kind of tell, tell, tell kingdom come. But I want to know why you see this as so, why you see this as so problematic like, why is this something that you specifically wanted to point out and say, okay, let's go, let's figure out, and let's figure out how to fix this. Right. Right. Um, I mean, this kind of goes back to how we started the conversation, right? Where a lot of these things fall into the middle ground of ineffective for strength, ineffective for endurance. They're a waste of time. <laughs> what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And, and when we talk about like over specific movements, that are loaded. I like, like, like this goes back to, there was a, there was an era with strength and conditioning where athletes were swinging weighted golf clubs yes. or they were swinging or the swimmers would come into the weight room and grab the bands and they would like do their stroke, like resisting against yes. the, the bands. Um, and, and like every sport had some version of that, right. And running the with a weight vest and pump their arms running with a weight vest. Is another That's one. the other thing though. That was the thing I wanted to, to bring up today. Um, cause I think that is common in our, we see that a lot. Like, and, it, right. and you have that idea of like, I'm going to run with my weight vest up and down the mountains. And then when I get in my race, it's going to feel really easy. 
Um, and Overload. The problem... <laughs> Overload, right? You're overloading on body mass. Yeah, I'm overloading and it's specific. Yeah, it must be right. it's, and... I mean, it seems perfect on paper. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, here's the problem with some of those things. And, and I'll go back to the golf swing analogy or the, you know, the weighted golf swing is what they found is if you're loading through a really specific skill that's specific to your sport, like a golf swing, when it's heavier weight, the recruitment pattern, the biomechanics change. It's not the same as when you run. And so you're not going to be able to like hit the ball harder, harder or further because you're changing, you're changing, you're messing with a really specific skill, changing the biomechanics of it. And and that it doesn't transfer. Um, and so with a running vest, um, it's kind of a similar idea, right? Like the recruitment pattern that your legs have to fire in and your, your whole body when running with this load, it's different than if you were running without it. And it, it can change. It doesn't always transfer. Um, and, and that's and not really new. Is, that's not new, by the way. This is you. We can go back to former podcast guest Roger Crom, one of my one of my former biomechanics professors, where they have looked at both loading and unloading running, and looked at the just the very simple kinematics of running, and they do see differences there. And when you translate that into the real world with interventions, you have to understand some of that very fundamental research that yes you're messing with in your words a very specific biomechanical pattern that you have trained over in many cases decades and now you're untraining it with the idea of overloading it with 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 weight and it in my i've always viewed this as just a lack of understanding of very basic biomechanical principles anyway keep going yeah yeah and and you know you say you're running up the mountain with your vest um, or I know a popular thing is to load with water and then you dump the water yeah. at the top so you can run downhill yeah, yeah. without the load. Um, I mean, when you're doing that, like you're getting a great workout, like there's a great burn there. It's hard. <laughs> you're like, this it's is hard. hard. This hard. is so hard. But like, if you want to increase your skill and your ability to run that climb, then run it at your normal weight or whatever weight you might be racing at, right? Like we have packs, we, like we carry things, run it at whatever you're going to face in the race, but run it harder, run it faster, yeah. like work on getting faster on the climb versus trying to add additional weight. Right. Um, the only use case I've seen, for, the, the only use case that I will kind of buy into it for, and I honestly, I think that this is a little bit of a stretch, so I don't deploy it all that often is when the extra weight changes the mode from a run to a hike and you have an athlete that doesn't have enough of that mode availability and training. So you have an athlete that's training for some mountainous ultra run and they just don't have the amount of terrain availability to hike as much as you want them to in training because of what kind of whatever reason using maybe not a weighted vest, but maybe something that's like kind of like 10% of their body weight or something like that, which is pretty reasonable, eight or 10%. Uh, that change that changes the mode from a run to a hike because of the extra weight artificially inducing that it's the is the only application it, but I, I gotta be honest with you 
if I look at all the programming that I've ever delivered, it's such a small fraction of it that I kind of even question doing that because I, once again, I know that even with that extra weight from a walking standpoint, it's still not going to be the same as them walking, kind of walking during the race. So anyway, that it's when I first got in this, in, in the sport of ultra running, it was really common for people mm-hmm. to use weighted vests in all kinds of ways. Like you name it, they do. We've been making fun of box step ups the entire time. They do box step ups with them. They do long runs with them. They do this, they do that and whatever. And now it's still kind of trimmed down, but it's still there. And i just kind of look at this and it's like, why are we still doing this? Well, and it's still there. And you see that argument of, well, it's only 10% of my weight. It's only you know, and I'm like, well, just wear your pack that you're going to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just wear the pack already, that you're going to wear. We're already carrying a little more than we're probably going to in a race anyway. Right. Yeah, because yeah. we're supported on our long runs. Yeah. Anyways. Anyway. Okay. What, so, so what other areas of this over specificity phenomenon do you see manifest itself in the weight room or in any of these other sort of adjunctive exercises that are, that, that are, uh, that are pretending to be strength training exercises. Let's just put it that way. Those, those are the two big ones I see. I see the pumping the arms, the weight vest, but even with, um, like when people are training for a downhill race and that's their rationale, that's their use case for strength training. Right. Like they'll come and just try to do a bunch of eccentric loading um, to try to match what they'll see um, with, a, with a lot of downhill. Um, but it falls into that same mistake, right? It, it isn't actually specific. It's not the actual movement right. you're going to be doing when running downhill. This I get that question every week. I get that, que- I get that question every week on Instagram. I don't have climbs. Should I use the weight room to train for the downhills? And... My answer is, is, well, that's a pretty novel attempt and maybe it's better than zero, but I'd rather probably just better just run in because of the lack of specificity there. Right. And, and maybe the weight training will make you more hardy and more sturdy as an ultra runner, but like it's, there's no, not a lot of evidence to be able to say that's going to help your downhill performance. Right. That's going to help your quads be more resistant to fatigue. Like that's, it's a difficult difficult conclusion to come to. And so I think the practical, the, the practical takeaway for the listeners here is that if you are in that situation, you're running a mountainous, uh, race and you are limited to the flats, don't chew up your time trying to be over specific and not being specific at the same time. Don't try to, no, seriously, I know that sounds super no, weird, it's but, you, true. but you're trying to be over specific by including some sort of eccentric component, either with, running up and down stairs or getting or doing copious amounts of squats or doing copious amounts of lunges, thinking that they are going to quote unquote season your quads or whatever silly vocabulary that, that, that we use for this. Those are all likely very ineffective. And at the very least, you have a solution that is not going to be effective. And at the very most, you have a solution that is going to be counterproductive to your training because you're substituting it for time that you could be spending doing other things that are more effective. So I, we both understand the urge to do it because it is important. You're better off not doing it and resisting that urge. And I think I got asked this question on a podcast. I think it was released today, actually. I got this question asked to me on a podcast just a few days ago. Um, 
what can the flatlanders do? And I just say, do everything you can to try to carve out a camp. If you can carve out a three-day camp and go relocate yourself for a few days in the mountains, that's going to make a hundredfold more difference than spending five minutes after every single run doing lunges or reverse squats or kind of whatever you think else is going to season your quads for the downhill. Just because that those exercises are just not very specific, even though they're intended to be. (laughs) We got to come up with a term for this. That'll be our homework. Come up with a term for this, for this phenomenon where people are coming up with exercises to be specific, but they don't contain the specificity that they are intending. They're chasing specificity. Chasing specificity. I don't know what it is. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to, we're going to nail this. All right. We're going to nail it. We're going to leave it at that though. That was a good one. I I appreciate you coming on. Um, I I think this is, this is going to be one of those podcasts where people are going to, something is going to resonate with them, meaning they have done this in training and that's okay. We're pointing out these things because they are common modalities. They are common interventions that we see. We want you guys to spend your very precious time doing the right things, doing the things that are efficacious and not simply spinning your wheel. So don't feel bad. We're not making fun of you. Maybe a no, little bit. <laughs> don't don't feel bad, but realize that there, there are likely sharper tools in the toolkit, so to speak that you can spend your precious time doing as opposed to some of the stuff that we mentioned. Nicole, thank you. Do you have any parting shots and where can people learn more about you and find out more about you? <laughs> I remember, remember Jason, I'm the dinosaur. I'm not the, I'm not the social media guru. That's all right. Send me an email. I would love to hear from anyone. <laughs> oh my God. That's a I bold statement. That's a I'm bold all statement. It. All right. I will I will include the email in the show notes because Go nobody for it. yeah, I'll include the email in the show notes. We'll see what you've got yourself into there. But uh, I'll th- let you know how that works out. <laughs> thanks for coming on the podcast today and putting some things in the crosshair that I, I do think need to be in the crosshair every now and then. This is uh this has been a fun one. Perfect. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Nicole for coming on the podcast today. Her email address is in the show notes. I'm still laughing that she agreed to do that. I would never do that. Um, but you guys know how to get a hold of me. Get a hold of me via social. Um, I hope you guys appreciated Nicole's background and her thoughts on some of these common strength training mistakes. It's always been a fun one to discuss within our coaching group. And I think that that came to light throughout the entirety of this podcast. Appreciate the heck out of all the listeners out there. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends, share it with your training partners. Feel free to forward it to them. If you know people who make this mistake and do the 10 minute abs after practice, maybe this is a good podcast to share with them. If you really like the podcast, give it a review on Apple Podcasts. It's quite meaningful to me and helps the podcast reach a much broader audience. And I'm always very appreciative of those reviews whenever I check them out online. So thank you, thank you, thank you for all of those. Once again, thanks to Nicole for coming on the podcast today. That was really fun. As always, you guys, we will see you out on the trails.